We were in the verses within the book of Revelation. We were in the first three verses of the prologue where we looked at the doctrine of imminence. And we went into an excursus about the doctrine of imminence because the entirety of the book of Revelation is bookended with the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is this imminent return and his imminent bringing about of the kingdom. Well, now, as we go into verses 4 through 8 here, we're continuing in the prologue. And notice the three things that we're going to be covering this morning. The first is the address. That's to us. Then is the doxology. Remember doxology? Doxa, glory. Lagos word. It's a word of glory to God. And then we're going to be looking at the theme. So really succinctly, I think that you could say this section that we're going to be looking at is about who we are, our uniqueness as believers in Jesus Christ, not because we're anything special, but because of what God has done for us. The second part is about the uniqueness of God, his power to save and his mercy and compassion. And then the theme, of course, is again about this coming kingdom of the Messiah. So that's what we're seeing all here in this prologue. And what's so exciting is you're going to see a lot of wonderful doctrine about who Christ is, about the Trinity. Uh, You can use these verses here this morning to prove that Jesus is regarded as God to Jehovah Witnesses. You can prove the Trinity from these verses to Oneness Pentecostals. And so this is a wonderful section of doctrine here this morning. So With that, let's get started in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that your promises are laid out before us so that we may believe in them, that we may persevere, and that we may be saved. And Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that as we look into this text, we would think well upon it so that we would learn more about who we are in relationship to you but also that we would learn more about your greatness, your glory, and your majesty. We ask that you would accomplish that for us, for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning we're going to begin here with John addressing the seven churches in verse 4a. Listen to what he says. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now, one of the questions we want to begin wrestling with here is why does John only pick on seven churches here? Why is God seemingly only addressing these seven? Now, there's been several different theories throughout the history of the church. And one of the theories that I want to debunk, so to speak, is held by the historist view and the idealist view. Now, remember, those are the views that sometimes spiritualize or oftentimes spiritualize the text of Revelation. What they would understand is the reason why John is addressing only seven churches is that these seven churches are representative of seven seven different dispensations or time periods that the church will go through during this age that we're living in prior to the return of the Messiah. So let me give you an example. The second church that's addressed from chapters 2 into 3 is the church of Smyrna. Those who hold to this particular view that, again, the seven churches are just different stages that the church will go through until Christ returns. The church of Smyrna was a church that underwent severe persecution. And so they would latch onto that and say, aha, 
That must have been the church during all of the tribulation that they went through during those evil Roman emperors like Domitian or like Nero. And then the last church member that's addressed is the church of what? Laodicea. And they would say, aha, that's where we are now. We're the lukewarm church. We're worthless. Christ says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That must be now. And so that's what they keep doing. And so, by the way, every generation that holds to this view always thinks that they're the Laodicean church ever since the time of the Reformation, right? Well, here's a better view. I think that these seven churches, yes, they're representative of the entirety of the church, but it's not that they represent successive stages that the church will go through, but the spiritual states that these churches are in are representative of the spiritual state of really any church today. And what's more is there's a phrase that you'll see throughout chapter 2 and 3 as Jesus addresses these seven churches. There's a phrase, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And so what that means then is that the principles for these seven are for us. That is for every believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, I think that's a much more satisfying answer. And it's important as we get into promises like, In Revelation 3.10, where we're promised to be preserved from the hour of trial, which is the the tribulation period, okay? If we just say, well, that's only for Philadelphia, we're missing it, okay? Now, let me show you another phrase that I think we should deal with here, and that is this nice greeting, grace to you and peace. This was a very common greeting in the day, but in some sense, it's Christianized. It's slightly changed, especially the term for grace, Now, here's what you have to realize. Paul always uses this greeting, except for 1 and 2 Timothy, and Peter uses this greeting. John uses this greeting. Now, here's what I want you to think about. This greeting of grace and peace only applies to us as Christians, and it's a very beautiful promise. We are the ones, as believers in Jesus Christ, who are uniquely given God's unmerited favor his grace, and we're the only ones that have peace with God. Now, when you read these, when you're reading the epistles for yourself, here's a passage I want you to think of. Write this down. It's it's in your notes, I know. But Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Because here Paul explains how it is that we as believers have grace and peace with God. Okay? Now, remember, Romans 5 follows after what? Romans 4. That's why I went to seminary. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thank you, Brian. It costs a lot of money to find that out. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> Romans 4, of course, is all about justification by faith alone. Well, now we're looking at the outcome of this justification by faith alone. Listen to what he says. Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... Also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, what's so beautiful about this is notice this peace with God that's highlighted red and into, his, into this grace. What's interesting about that is they're both followed. I'm going to try to point to the screen here. They're both followed by a prepositional phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it says, through whom? So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and through whom, again, that's Jesus Christ, we have an introduction into this grace, literally into the sphere of his grace. So that preposition through is a preposition of agency. So Christ is the agent that gives us peace with God, and he is the one who deposits us in the camp or the sphere where we have the unmerited favor or the grace of God. That's a preposition of agency. Now, also notice what I have highlighted green. It's by faith. That is the means by which we have these benefits. So Jesus is the agent. Faith is the means or the instrument. So here you can see, just in Romans 5, 1 through 2, justification, having peace with God, and God's unmerited favor is only for those that have Christ, and it's by faith. Faith alone, Christ alone, and all to the glory of God alone. This past Wednesday, I did a message about Marxism, and I had recalled that in the 1960s, Marxism became very popular. And one of the movements that came into the United States was the quote-unquote peace movement. Remember, you always had these hippies saying, peace, man, right? And then one of their symbols that they had for peace was the broken cross. That's what the peace, and it came from Bertrand Russell. It's an occultic symbol. It's a broken cross upside down. The peace that this world longs for is peace with man. They think that they're the ones, through human effort, that are going to bring about the kingdom. They're the ones who are going to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But what the scriptures teach is that the peace that we need is with God. And if you don't have peace with God, you don't have peace at all. You're going to have nothing but warfare at the end of the day with human beings, and you'll be under his wrath. So it's a unique privilege then of the Christian alone. The Christian alone has true peace in God's unmerited favor. That's the uniqueness of you and I. Not because we've done anything, but because of the greatness of our God. We are the only ones that have peace, man, and the only ones that are deposited (laughs) in the sphere of God's unmerited favor. Isn't that beautiful? What an extraordinary privilege we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, let's move on then to the sender of the address. And what you're going to see is that the entire Trinity is sending this address to the church. Revelation 1, 4b through 5a says, From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I want to begin with this phrase, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but I'm going to show you this phrase in Greek. And there's a reason I want to do this. This is what it looks like in Greek, that phrase, from him who is and who was and who is to come. The very beginning of that Greek construction, there's a preposition, apa. Notice that's where we have our term from. What's very interesting is that preposition always takes a word that is in the genitive case after it. The genitive case in Greek is the case of possession. Okay? Now, what's interesting is the very next word that follows in the Greek text is what's called a pronominal article. And what's interesting is that's where we have our hymn in the English. 
That is actually in the nominative case. So you see, APA de demands a genitive case, but we don't have it. So liberal scholars love to latch onto that and say, aha, John is a buffoon. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He's making a clear grammatical error here. And they love to run wild with that. But there's a better explanation than that. In Greek, when you have a proper name or even a title, it's undeclinable. In other words, you don't have to worry about those types of agreements. Now, why is that important? Instead of attributing this grammatical error to John, what we're really being tipped off to is the fact that this is being used as a proper name or a title of God. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's his name. That's his title, as it were. And so it's undeclinable. Now, why is that important? Because it's referring back, I think, to Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14, remember Moses asked, to, he asked the God at the burning bush, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And he says this, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, you must say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. He's the eternal one. By the way, I am in Hebrew is hayah. It looks like a verb. Um, and it sounds like a karate chop, right? Hayah. <laughs> but it just literally means it's a yuktol verb. It's I will be, I will be, I will be. It just has this idea of existence. And of course, Jesus picks up on that in John 8, 58, before Abraham was I am. He's the eternal one. So it's much better to attribute this to a title of God, the eternal one, than it is to say, ah, John doesn't know what he's doing. He made a grammatical error. Okay? Now, the reason I tell you that is you'll, every now and then you'll read a commentary where you'll see critics criticize this verse, and I think that's a better understanding of it. Now, the next thing we come to is notice the seven spirits. We have to wrestle with what these seven spirits are, and I want you to know that some people claim that the seven spirits are not, it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but instead they would claim it's a reference to angels. Okay, now one of the reasons they say that is notice the seven spirits is listed second in this list of three, if this is the Trinity. Well, they would say, well, isn't it more likely that if this is the Holy Spirit, it would be mentioned third because he's often the third person of the Trinity? Well, I don't think that that's persuasive. Number one, Jesus Christ is at the end because the rest of the verses of this passage focus on him. So it's an emphasis idea, okay? What's more is spirits is never used in the book of Revelation, the pneumata. It's never used for angels. It's used for demons. But do you think demons are going to be greeting the church? Okay, I don't think so. Now, what a very, I think a better answer is this is a reference back to Zechariah chapter 4. Remember, we learned in our introduction, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation 278 of them contain an allusion to the Old Testament. So more than likely, I think this is a reference back to Zechariah chapter 3 and 4. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah 4, verse 2. And as you're turning there, I'll just mention some things in Zechariah. Zechariah, at the end of chapter 3, there's a reference to seven eyes. And that's clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to see another imagery, seven lampstands, and that's also an image of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what John is pulling on, okay? And I'll show you why. Zechariah 4, 2, 
This is the Lord again speaking to Zechariah to Zerubbabel. The Lord said, he said to me, what do you see? Now this is Zechariah. And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps. I'm sorry, the lamps. There's the reference to the Holy Spirit. On it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on the top of it. Now we come to that verse. Remember in verse 6? Therefore, I'm going to skip down four verses. We covered this last week. Therefore, he told me, these signify the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by strength and not by power, but by my spirit. So how was the temple going to be built in Zerubbabel's day? It wasn't by might, man's power, but it's going to be by the work of the Holy Spirit. God will do it. So there you have a clear link, I think, between the seven lamps and the Holy Spirit. Now, go down to verse 10 in the same passage. i got to scroll down so I can read it here. Verse 10, it says, For who dares make light of small beginnings? He's talking about the beginnings of the temple that's finished by Zerubbabel in 515 B.C. He says, These seven eyes will joyfully look on the tin tablet in Zerubbabel's hand. These are the eyes of Yahweh, which constantly range across the whole earth. So the reason seven is used here is it's alluding back to Zechariah, and seven is always this image of completeness, perfection, fullness. It's that sort of idea. It's not that the Holy Spirit should be conceived of seven different spirits. It's the idea of fullness. Now you can clearly see then in verse 10 that the seven eyes are of Yahweh who range across the earth. Now who had the cross-reference Revelation uh, 4 Five. Oh, that's right, Clodoris. So everybody turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 4, 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and, and thunder. Burning before the throne were seven fiery torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay. Thank you, Clodoris. Thank you. So all of you heard then in Revelation 4, what you have is this throne room setting. And by the way, did you hear her mention the lightnings and flashes and thunder? That's storm theophany. So it's a manifestation of God, just like when he was on Mount Sinai. What's interesting is that occurs at the end of every judgment. In other words, you have the seven seals, storm theophany. Seven trumpets, storm theophany. Seven bowls, storm theophany. Why? Because all of those judgments come from the throne of God. It shows his sovereignty. He's the one who's actually doing those things. All right? So now in the throne room, remember in the throne room, we see that Jesus alone is the one who is capable of opening the book with the seals on it. And so she just read that from the throne room, you have the seven spirits of God. Well, that's obviously the Holy Spirit. It's not that there's seven. It's the idea of fullness. Now, turn your Bibles one chapter ahead. Revelation 5, 6. Again, this is still in the throne room, and this is right after I think John has just wept, if I remember correctly, because no one was found worthy of opening the book with the seals on it. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, of course, is found to be fit. Revelation 5, 6, John says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out, into all the earth. Now, notice that phrase, sent into all the earth. Notice how similar that is to Zechariah 4.10, where it said that the eyes of Yahweh, the seven, 
constantly ranged across the whole earth. Okay? Zechariah 4.10, it was the Holy Spirit ranging across the whole earth. Clearly, it's the same thing in the book of Revelation. So here's the point. The seven spirits is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is at play here then. So, by the way, before I move off this slide, this is a great passage then to show your oneness Pentecostal friends or any of those who hold to an Arian heresy, which is that there is no Trinity, that Jesus is not God. Okay, clearly this demonstrates the three persons of the Trinity. Now, notice Jesus Christ then. He's also singled out, and notice the title for him. He's a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Wow. That's quite a description. I want to show you where that comes from. We're going to get into Psalm 89 here, but let me just back up and talk about, notice we're going to talk about Jesus Christ being the faithful firstborn king of the earth. Let's begin with firstborn. Remember the promise is that the Messiah is going to come from Israel. Well, do you remember God in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22? He calls Israel his firstborn. Now, and Bob has talked about this numerous times. What's very interesting in that text is, remember the big rub or the the inks that we should have is the Egyptians want to wipe out God's firstborn. So what does God do is he in his power turns the tables on the Egyptians. Remember what the last plague does? It wipes out their firstborn. And so he takes Israel out to be his own. Now, why is that significant? Because firstborn in the ancient Near East is the preeminent one. They're the ones that have the inheritance in the family. That's the right that the firstborn has. And so Israel is singled out as God's firstborn because from Israel is going to be born this Messiah who is uniquely God's firstborn. And so you see then in Hosea 11.1 why it's so significant that Hosea the prophet says, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew chapter 2 That passage is ascribed to Jesus. Why? Because if you lose Israel in Egypt, if they're wiped out, who else is wiped out? Jesus, the firstborn. Jesus is pregnant within Israel. And so Jesus is uniquely the firstborn that God wants to bring on the scene. He is the preeminent one over all creation. And so we see this idea then all over the place, um, and we're going to see it here in Psalm 89. Now, let me set the stage for Psalm 89. I've got some cross-references I'll have read here in just a moment. But Psalm 89 is where John is borrowing from in Revelation. Psalm 89 is a psalm that was written by Ethan. He's a Levite. He's a priest. And why he writes Psalm 89 is because I think Judah was going through hard times. It may have been during the split under Rehoboam and Jeroboam because of the sin of Solomon. But in Psalm 89, he writes about God being faithful to his Davidic covenant, that he's going to bring the firstborn about, all right? That's what Psalm 89 is all about, that God would be faithful to bring Messiah from David, even though Judah is engaged in sin. And so we don't have time to read all of Psalm 89, but let me just show you a portrait here. Psalm 89, 27. This, again, is what the Lord will do. He says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? So remember, this initially applies to David, but David is probably off the scene at this point. I think this is written around 925 B.C. 
right as the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak is invading Judah because Judah, instead of trusting Yahweh, they trusted in foreign alliances. All right? So this Ethan who writes this is saying, God, be faithful. Be faithful to the Davidic covenant because you said the seed, the Messiah, the firstborn is going to come from him. So this ultimately then has to be applied to whom? The Messiah. Now, who had the cross references? We're going to talk about this idea of firstborn, and we're going to talk a little bit about the imagery of firstborn from the dead as well. Who had um, the 1 Corinthians 15.23? Oh, Norm, thank you. Now, before Norm reads this, remember our cross reference that we're looking at here, or the biblical passage, Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. So he's the preeminent one, but he's also, there's a reference to those who are dead. The implication is he's been raised from the dead. Listen to what Norm says here from Paul. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. I'm sorry, yeah. In the context there, it's talking about the resurrection. So Jesus is called what? He's called the first fruits. So remember, what's the first fruits imagery? The Israelites, when they would have the first fruits, feast they would take the first portion of the harvest and they would wave it in front of the lord and they would say lord we have this much of the harvest we trust that one day the rest is coming so the beautiful imagery is jesus is the first portion of the harvest but one day the rest of us will follow so remember jesus is really the first one to have a glorified body lazarus is raised from the dead yes it's a real resurrection but what happens is he dies again right he doesn't have a glorified body as jesus does so Jesus really is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay? Now, I want you to see the other side of it, though, is this idea of preeminence, and that tied into the firstborn from the dead again. Colossians 1, 15 and 18, is that you? Uh... I have that. Oh, Brian, sorry. Did I skip over you, uh, Clodoris? No, she read. No, she oh, you read already. I'm sorry. I just thought oh, you're right. Yeah. Thank you. Go ahead. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Wow. There you see this idea of firstborn. He's preeminent over all creation. So, of course, Colossians is laying out the fact that he created all things, but not only did he create all things, he sustains all things. He is the preeminent one, and he's the firstborn from the dead again. Now, notice the other phrase, he's the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, we see that he's the ruler of the kings in the passage we were just studying, Revelation 1.5. At the end of Revelation, in chapter 19, remember Jesus returns, and he's on that white horse, and do you remember what's written on his thigh? That, exactly, that's written there. But this is on his thigh. It's a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, but that's also on the, on the, in the mix. Yeah. yeah, Nancy. Could you please explain to me why him being a pronoun in that verse is not capitalized? Yeah, you know, good question. This may be, first of all, I don't remember what text. I think I took it from the NASB. Is your the NASB? Do you have NASB Bible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the NASB, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, 
Will, if it thinks it's a reference to God, it will capitalize the pronoun. Now, here's the issue. There's an interpretive call here, is there not? Because the hymn really belongs to David, right? But remember our corporate solidarity, the one and the many? You have David, and from whom David, or the one who comes from him, is, of course, the greater David, the Messiah. That's why, remember in Ezekiel 37, 25, David has been dead for 500 years, about 450. And it says David will reign over them. They're not talking about David, David. They're talking about the Messiah. So close, re, closely related to David is the Messiah because he's coming from his lineage. The covenant was given, by the way, in 2 Samuel 7. Okay, that's what is being recounted here in Psalm 89. So closely associated with David is the Messiah that he's often called David. And so what I think we're looking at here is an interpretive call where the NASB is saying, well, I think this is really a promise to David, but ultimately it's fulfilled in the Messiah. They know that, but they're not telling you with the small case pronoun that they're saying this is a direct reference to God. Okay? Now, sometimes, just to let you know, sometimes I quote from other versions like the ESV, and they won't... Um, typically, I, I show you that, that I say ESV. Sometimes I forget, and sometimes they don't have capital pronouns. Yeah. Does that help, Nancy? Okay. Yep. Eric, does the same apply to your verse in Revelation 1, 4 through 5, firstborn, the firstborn? Exactly. That's the whole point. I'm just showing you kind of where that imagery right. is so, flushed it's out. It's the same implication? Same implication, exactly. Thank you. Yep. So what John wants us to see then is this, this Jesus is related to David. He's the, the preeminent one, just as Israel was just as David was. So remember, the very first promise is the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Judah's a tribe. Of all the tribes of Judah, there's a family that's singled out. It's David's family. That's 2 Samuel 7. Ethan, during a time of trial, saying, Lord, remember that promise. Okay? So what John is doing in Revelation all those years later, he's saying Jesus fulfills all of this. He really is the fulfillment of Psalm 89 of the Davidic covenant. That's what he's saying here. Okay? So again, he's the highest kings of the earth. Now, look at what it goes on to say. It's very beautiful. Psalm 89, 33 through 37. The Lord says, But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate. Now, that's proof that it was a Davidic covenant right there. Nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Now, let's begin in this passage, because again, John is borrowing right from this passage in Revelation. What about this idea of loving kindness? Well, remember when we were studying, oh, this is probably a couple of months ago, about Mephibosheth? That term is chesed. Now, remember who Mephibosheth was? He was a nobody from nowhere, exactly, a spiritual cripple. And what was the problem? Mephibosheth was from the lineage of Saul. David ascends to the throne. Bob, by the way, read the article, Having Dinner with the King. Dining. Oh, I'm sorry, Dining with the King. Dining with the King. It is on your CIC. It's um, the last one put out, right? I think so. Yeah. It explains this whole thing in wonderful detail. But Mephibosheth is the one who should be killed by the king. So think about David represents Messiah, God, 
Now, he's not God. He's representing him. He should kill Mephibosheth. He's a contender to the throne. Aren't you and I contenders to the throne? But Mephibosheth is also helpless. He's crippled. And so unless David shows Chesed, loving kindness, Mephibosheth is going to be wiped out. But Mephibosheth is actually taken by David because he remembers his covenant to Jonathan. And he brings him into his palace. And he says, you're going to eat forever at the king's table. And remember what Mephibosheth says, who am I but a dead dog to eat at the king's table? It's a beautiful picture of salvation. So this loving kindness then is this term chaset. And so it has to do with this idea. I like to translate it covenant love. There's two elements involved with it. There's this idea of mercy, unmerited favor by God that's extended to a person so that they have a relationship with Yahweh. But then on the basis of that initial reaching out by God, there's a continuation of faithfulness, a covenant whereby even if the person is faithless, God remains faithful to his promises. That's why I like to call it covenant love. Now, what's so beautiful is his covenant love is to whom? It's to David, because he promised Messiah is going to come from David. So notice what he says to David. He says, his descendants shall endure. That term is better rendered seed. It's the term Zerah, or Zerah, okay? Now, why is that important? Because the very first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, is about Zerah. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. That's the very first gospel. So the seed then we see is going to again come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and now it's going to come from David. And so what does he say? This promise is going to endure just as the moon endures month after month that goes through its cycle. God's promise to bring about the Messiah from David will endure. So now Jesus is called the faithful witness. He is the one who demonstrates in Revelation 1-5 that all of these promises are found in him. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see, that Jesus Christ fulfills all of the promises and God was faithful despite all of the sin of Israel, all of the sin of David. All these generations he was faithful. Why? Because even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's cassette. And that's all found then in the person and work of Christ, from whom we have grace and peace. Wow. Boy, John is really throwing it on us, isn't he? Okay. Now, let's keep going then, and we see the doxology. Remember, doxa, glory, logos, word. It's a word of glory, and of course, it's given to God. What's very interesting is this word of glory is extended to Christ. What does that show you? Jesus is God because only God is given glory, right? So this is great affirmation of the deity of Christ. Revelation 1, 5, B through 6 here, it says, To him, that's to Christ, who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him, the same him, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want to begin talking about this idea of being released from our sins. The Bible depicts oftentimes a relationship where you and I are, as sinners, are pictured as slaves. And we're slaves in bondage or in the prison of sin. 
Okay? What happens is when Jesus Christ lays his life down for us, and you and I trust in him by God's grace, we're released from that prison, and now we're slaves to him. We're his doulas. We're slaves to Christ and his camp. So we go from one camp to the other, and we can see this very explicitly in Romans six seventeen through 18. Pat, did you have that passage? Yeah, so I'm sorry, hold on, wait till Rich gets there with the, the microphone, and then everyone, we're in Romans 6, 17 through 18. I want you to see this relationship between being in slavery to sin and then what Jesus does for us. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin you became slaves of righteousness. Wow. Thank you, Pat. Remember Bob um, gave us a wonderful message where he led us through John chapter 8. And I don't know, it was probably a couple months ago. Well, I always think it's a couple months. Probably. Over a hotel, I oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I don't know when it happened, but Bob gave us a message. <laughs> In John 8, remember Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. We're freed from the slavery of sin. Now, what Pat's going to look up now is a reference that Israel will one day be freed from sin, from their iniquity in Psalm 130, verses 7 through 8. So go ahead and read that, Pat. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Wow. So notice it was stated, the, the loving kindness again, that's chaset. And what's going to happen to Israel? One day they're going to be released from all their iniquity. That's what Revelation's about. The, the Revelation's about the 70th week of Daniel. What happens at the end? The kingdom comes to Israel, and even Israel will be released from their sins, no longer to be captives again. What a wonderful promise. Now, notice then how this was accomplished, this release from sins. It was by his blood. Now, let me just teach a little, um, you've all heard of metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech that is loosely associated with something it's representing. Like if I said um, the sword, the sword loosely represents government, right? Because they have the power of the sword. Well, this here is blood. Blood functions as what's called a synecdoche. Now, a synecdoche is a form of speech where you have um, a subgroup of the whole referring to the whole. So in other words, the blood is part of Jesus Christ's atonement. So it functions to represent the whole of the atonement, his death. Okay. Now, let me explain why I think this is important for us to think about. We often sing, and we rightly do so, about the power of the blood, and there's nothing wrong with that. As long as we remember that the Bible's not teaching that there's some magic power within Jesus' blood or some metaphysical property within it that heals. The blood of Christ stands in total of his death. Okay? So it's the death of the Messiah in its entirety that is a substitution for you and I who deserve to die. All right? Now, the reason I mention that is John MacArthur, some years ago, he was just pummeled by these people who didn't know any better because he had explained this very same thing that I'm explaining to you. Yep. And remember, Bob, all these critics came out of the woodwork saying, John MacArthur is denying the blood atonement. No, he wasn't. 
He was just saying, let us remember, it's not the magical property within the blood. It's what that blood represents, the entirety of Christ's death on our behalf. Okay? So remember that the next time we're singing, there's power in the blood. We're not claiming magical properties, metaphysical properties to the blood. What we're saying is it represents the entirety of Jesus' death on our behalf. Okay? All right. So now, what I want you to see here also is notice here we're called to be what? A kingdom and priest to God the Father. Now, if you read the Gospels, you'll remember, you'll always see Jesus talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom being at hand. He's talking about those who are fit for the kingdom. The kingdom is comprised of individuals who repent now and trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Revelation is all about is the kingdom coming where there's a place for us. Not that there's not a place for us in heaven, but we are going to reign, as it says in Revelation 5, where? Upon the earth. Okay? So this kingdom then takes upon special meaning in the book of Revelation because the kingdom is breaking forth, or it will in the future, right, when Jesus Christ returns. That's the idea of the book. Now, think about it. You and I are called priests. In fact, we see this in 1 Peter 2, 5. We are called a royal priesthood. I want you to think about how unique it is that you and I are now priests. In the Old Covenant, if you were going to be a priest to God, you had to have a special heredity. You had to be what? From the lineage of Aaron. But think about our privilege. How are you and I qualified to be priests of God? By being sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. It's adoption. Now think about in the Old Covenant, the priests, what did they have to do? They had to keep offering the blood of the animals over and over and over What do you and I offer? The preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified once and for all, a once and for all sacrifice. So we have a much better priesthood. It's resultant from Jesus Christ, who was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Very beautiful indeed. Now, here's what I want you to see, too, is notice here, it says to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's clearly a reference to Jesus. Again, the reason that's significant is Jesus is being given glory, and that's something only God has given. In fact, let's look at a couple of passages for that. Who has the uh, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12? I think Jim does. Now, this is the entire Psalm 2, but I want you to listen to Psalm 2 because it talks about his dominion of the Messiah, and it also is talking about his glory. Okay, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, your kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wow. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Notice the only way out is to take refuge in the Son because His wrath can be kindled. So that's about His dominion. Now, let's just think about this for just a moment. I think we have a little time. We can do this. Remember in the transfiguration, you have three disciples are up on the mount. And what do they hear? This is my Son. Yeah, from the Father. Now, think about what that means. That's a quotation back to Psalm 2. That's why Peter, we see in 2 Peter 1, he says that we have the prophetic word made more sure. Why does he say that? Because the apostles were dealing with false teachers and saying, this Jesus isn't coming back. And you today have people that are saying, this Jesus is never going to have dominion as this passage is teaching. But the apostles were there. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard the voice say, this is my son. They were there. There were eyewitnesses. Now, the reason that's so significant is, remember when Jim was reading, one of the promises, I think it's in verse 7, is that the son in Psalm 2 is going to have the nations as his inheritance. When Jesus hears that on the Mount, he doesn't have the nations. He's not ruling over the, the nations yet. That is physically. And so what Peter reasoned was Jesus must return a second time. And so they had all the prophetic word clarified and made sure because it was affirmed that this Jesus must come back. He is the Messiah and he will reign over the nations. You and I don't experience this ourselves. We are trusting in the word of the apostles. We trust in the word of God by faith, right? But there's evidence because they saw these things, all right? Now, the other passage I want someone to read here, I think we had Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Oh, yeah, Floyd, go ahead. I'm when sorry. you get a chance, can you explain doxology? Yeah, Just uh, doxology, quick. doxa is glory. It comes from two words, doxa, glory, and then logos is word. And so that's put together. And so it's a word of glory. And so notice the glory is being given to whom? It's to him, which is Jesus. Okay, yeah. And so that shows us that Jesus is God. Very good question. Now, with that, we have the Philippians 2 passage. This is about giving glory to Jesus. But what's interesting is it was initially applied to Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 23. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is Yahweh. That's what we can see, yeah. So who had the Philippians 2? Oh, yeah, Mary Alice. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Amen. So God the Father is glorified when his Son is confessed as being Lord and given glory that is a citation or an allusion Paul has back to Isaiah 45, 23. Now, let me read another passage. Listen to this, Isaiah 48, 11. Listen to what God declares. He says, for my own sake, and he repeats it, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? He will not give his glory to another. So what does that mean? That if Jesus is being glorified, God isn't going to share his glory with anyone else. Well, the implication is Jesus must be God because God isn't going to share his glory with anyone else. What a wonderful passage to show the Jehovah Witnesses when they come to the door and they say, why do you believe that Jesus is God? Break this passage out and you can show them that. Jesus is given glory 
In Isaiah 48, 11, God doesn't share his glory with anyone else. It's only for himself. Okay? All right, now let's get on to our last slide here where we're going to see the theme. This is what the book is all about, and I love it. It's all about the coming king and his kingdom. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 7 through 8. Here's the theme of the book. John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all, of the, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the Almighty is certifying that this will, in fact, be the case. Now, notice in the beginning here where it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and then what's in red, we have what's called conflation. And the New Testament writers often do this, where they take two Old Testament passages and they just put them right together. So what's in caps, then, is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is all about the Messiah coming to reign. Okay, in fact, turn your Bibles to that. I'll read a little bit about it, and you'll see where it comes from. I think as we turn our Bibles to it, sometimes it sticks in your mind where you'll recall it a little bit better. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 11. We'll start there through 14. Now, as you're turning to Daniel 7, remember the issue here is Daniel has seen a vision. And the vision is of these four kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. Well, there's going to be this revived Roman empire from which the Antichrist comes from. And he's depicted as a horn that speaks blasphemous words. Okay? That's what we see here in Daniel 7:11. Daniel says, "Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, there's the antichrist was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, now these are the other three, that is the all the other kingdoms. He says, "Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time." Now let's stop there for just a moment. What that means then is when the Antichrist kingdom comes, it's just decimated. But prior to that, all these other kingdoms that led up to it, yes, God would have them dwindle away, but they would be kind of subsumed within other cultures. So they just kind of con- lingered or continued on, as it were. Okay, But not so with the Antichrist kingdom. It'll be completely destroyed. And then he says this in verse 13. This is where we have the quotation in Revelation 1-7. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. Verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion, glory again, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So that's what's being stated here. The theme of the entire book of Revelation is about this kingdom that Messiah brings that will never go away. And I tell you what, friends, when I look at the situation that America's in in the world, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that type of rule. What a day that will be, right? We have the king of kings reigning over us. We won't have some of the nonsense. Like I heard about a kid who chewed his Pop-Tart, and so it looked like a gun. And he was expelled. <laughs> and I think to myself, oh, for crying out loud, he didn't eat his breakfast food right away. Now, remember, this is the pro-choice crowd, right? They say that you have the, the right to murder the unborn, but you can't eat your Pop-Tart so it looks like a gun. 
right? You talk about the insanity. But one day, Messiah, he's going to reign, and all that insanity that drives us crazy, it's all going away, friends. What I love about this in Revelation 1-7 is notice it says, Behold, he is coming. Many, I don't know how many sermons ago, I'm way off apparently because I never remember, right? But many sermons ago, I talked about, in, oh, it was in uh, Mark 11. Jesus comes in and he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Behold, O daughter of Jerusalem, your king comes to you. He's coming to you. He's the coming one. Psalm 118.22, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes... He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The one who comes itself is a messianic reference. And it's used, this whole passage, by the way, I think John may be borrowing directly from Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit because the same thing is taught in Matthew 24.30. Matthew 24.30, notice the same. Notice everything in uh, caps in Revelation 1.7 is in caps in Matthew 24.30. That's Daniel 7.13. Everything in red in both passages is from Zechariah chapter 12. And it's in both. Matthew 24, 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, remember, that is the second coming. That's the second coming of Christ. Okay, so that's at the end of the seven years. So there's going to be no mistake about it. Now, that's important. Remember, Bob last week was talking about one of the tests for the Spirit. And one of the tests that we see in 1 John is all the spirits that confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's from God. Now, why is that important? Because today, so many claim to believe in a spiritual Jesus, a cosmic Jesus, a mystical Jesus. Well, notice in both of these texts, when he comes back, you ain't going to miss it, okay? It's going to be very, it's physical. And the whole world, all the tribes, every eye will see him. So if someone's claiming, well, I know the mystical Jesus, don't look for him. Because when he returns, it's going to be so obvious why he returns bodily, physically, with great power and glory. You can't miss it. That's one of the great points here. One other thing I want to point out is notice here this term. This is from... Zechariah 12, it says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Bob, you have uh, John 19.37 there. I want you to see, everybody see the connection between that passage and this. Okay. We have here John chapter 19, verse 37. Also, another scripture says, They will look at the one they pierced. They will look at the one whom they pierce. Now, that's a quotation from from Zechariah 12.10. All right? Now, here's the significance of it. Notice in John 19.37, Jesus is being crucified. And so he says, they look upon the one whom they pierced. But the rest of the verse goes on to say this. It says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only or a firstborn child. Notice John leaves the mourning portion out. Why? Because that doesn't happen during the first advent. It happens at the second. Okay? Now, one other thing about that pierced, a lot of scholars say John didn't write the Bible or the book of Revelation. He didn't write it. 
Well, this term that's used, agneto, is used only here by John in Revelation 1, 8 or 7, and it's also used in John 19, 37. Those are the only two times that term is used, and they're both used by John. And so that very term pierced is a proof, I think, that John wrote the book of Revelation because it's so unusual. It's not used in the Septuagint, that term. Only John uses it for the piercing. It's unique. It's unique to John. So do you want evidence that John wrote Revelation? There you have it. All right? Now, what else do we have in the goodie bag here? Oh, think about this, dear ones. Think about this great promise where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, or who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That very same thing is said at the end of Revelation 22, and Jesus says it. He says, in Revelation 22, 12 through 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So here, in Revelation 1, 8, it's applied to God the Father. But in Revelation 22, 13, the Alpha and the Omega is Jesus. Why? Because they're one. Jesus is God. Dear ones, let's just put it all together. You and I are unique, the ones who have grace and peace, because of what Jesus Christ did for us, because of his faithfulness. God was faithful to bring the Messiah, who has the right to rule, from David, and he's coming to bring this glorious kingdom. It will happen, and it's imminent. It is at hand. And so no matter what you're going through in life now, remember the best is yet to come. The inanity and the insanity that you see in our day and age will be put down as the king of kings rules that's what Revelation is all about, and it's a great blessing to us as the people of God. So with that, I'm sorry I went to the very end. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the great promise of your Son's coming in great power and glory. We thank you that during this time of trial and tribulation and pain that we have in this life, that we have these promises to look forward to. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters here that in times of temptation they would remember the promise and that they would live for you, the king, and the kingdom to come rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. I also ask, Lord, that you would help them remember these things in the dark days of life when health isn't so good and finances aren't so good, that they remember their promises that they have in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.